every time I've read this passage, I think of me, myself, as an individual climbing up on an altar, a giant barbecue of sorts, and laying myself to be burned for the sake of worship to the Lord. But that's not what it says. It says, present your bodies. Bodies. And as Americans, we just think everything's just about me as the individual. And our worship is just about me and God. And as an individual, that's just, it's just between me and him. It doesn't include the rest of the body of Christ. And that's not what the word is telling us. And even if you look at the context of the rest of this chapter, it's talking about the body of Christ, that the gifts of God are working in with each other. They're intermingling. And, and, and the whole context of this chapter is that as we worship God, we do it together, that that is what blesses his heart. That is how we praise him, not as individuals. We got that down as Americans. Rugged individuality is our specialty. We love it. We are very bad at community and, and oneness. And I just, I feel that tension just even in our, in our nation right now. Accusations and you, you betrayed me. No, you, that's, we're all pointing the finger and, and we need to be careful as the body of Christ that that does not bleed into our, our body. Not even just this building, but our body. Turn to, uh, 1 Corinthians, just go to the right, just a couple pages really. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And Paul's writing about, about communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17 says this. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together... It is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be fractions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal and goes on uh, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So Paul, he's talking to the Corinthians, um, and he is, he's saying the body of Christ, when you come together as a church, there's supposed to be this unity happening. You eat when, you know, you were supposed to come together and eat, partake in the Lord's Supper, that we all are the body of Christ by taking this. That's a, um, in part, that uh, symbolizes that we are all partaking of his flesh and his blood, and he unifies us. But they're not doing that. They're not coming together and unifying. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup in this new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this idea of unity, this idea of we have to come together as the body to worship. It's as we mingle and work together and as we are unified, we worship. And, and then, you know, just even looking at this idea, it's on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he gave communion to his disciples. He knew that he was walking into a situation where he was going to lay himself bare for, for the people he served and, and he would be betrayed by them. This is where um, my sermon connects to the, the story of Hosea. So if you want to turn to Hosea, it wasn't a fire alarm. I don't know what it was. <laughs> if you turn to Hosea, um, we're going to be looking at mainly at um, chapter 2, verses 14 through 20. So you can kind of put your finger right there a little bit into chapter 3. But let me just kind of lay... Um, the story for you of Hosea out. Hosea is a prophet, and like almost all prophets in the Bible, the word of the Lord came to Hosea and called him to do something. Well, the word of the Lord comes to Hosea, and he says, Hosea, I want you to go and marry a prostitute. That's quite the parallel of Jesus having to come and lay his life down for those who he knew would betray him. Hosea, I want you to go and marry a prostitute. Marry a woman of whoredom. And he goes, he marries her. Her name is Gomer. They have three children. The last child, you can tell the marriage is not going so well because the last child's name is not mine. We don't don't know exactly how this all takes place, but Gomer, she leaves. She forsakes her family. She goes after other lovers and in that process of going after other lovers, after um, sleeping with different men, she ends up becoming a slave. And these other lovers became her masters. They became her pimps. And she finds herself in chapter 3 standing in a marketplace, and we could probably guess standing there naked for sale. And, and probably I, the idea is she's like half price. She's standing there naked at half price. And who comes to save her? Hosea. Let me just read the first couple of verses of chapter 3 to you out of Hosea. And the Lord said to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisin. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethech of barley. 15 shekels of silver and some barley. He bought her back. And he said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so I also will be to you. As they are walking home, and he is... He's not telling her how he's going to teach her a lesson. He's not letting her know how, how wicked she is. He says, you must be my wife. I will be your husband. Connecting to that idea of Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you would present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's it. That's the picture. It's the picture of Jesus Christ. And that's how we are supposed to operate with each other 
as the body of Christ, and that is worship. And I just, I read that, I say that to you, and all I can think of is, I don't know Jesus at all. Man, when I look at that picture, I'm just like, I am so wicked, Lord. My heart's not there. I'm the gomer. You know, there's times in ministry as a pastor, you're like, I feel betrayed. I feel used. And as I take a step closer to the Lord in that betrayal and in that, you know, feeling of hurt, all I can really end up seeing is, oh my gosh, you love me, even though I betray you all the time. Oh my goodness, I'm the gomer. And you're Hosea. This story parallels what's happening in the nation of Israel. So I want to just back up and read a couple verses of what God's heart is saying to the nation of Israel at this time in Hosea's life. If you turn to, it's Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. It may be on the same page for you. I don't know. But Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, God says to his people through Hosea, and he's talking about the nation of Israel. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. I will bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. We don't like wilderness experiences. They are not fun places. It is not a comfortable, let's go on a nice retreat to Zephyr Cove kind of thing. <laughs> um, the wilderness experiences are always painful. They are usually, they're painful. And as people were like, God, God could never use painful experiences. He could never use long painful experiences but he does. He absolutely does. And we're looking at Exodus right now. And as the people of Israel are walking through the wilderness, God is doing a work in them. And it is a long work. It is a good work. If you are in a wilderness experience this morning, do not grow weary if it feels long. God is still working. Do not grow weary if you think, there's no way I could be in God's will in this. I must, I must have taken you know, a wrong step at some point. God's saying, I will allure you into these environments, into these places. I mean, Gomer, her wilderness experience is, is walking away from her husband and going after these, these other lovers. And, and maybe you could say that her wilderness experience really is, is her standing on the, save, on the slave block being sold for half price. But it's through that wilderness experience, it's through that moment of standing and, and the reckoning of her sin that she experiences salvation. Let's just keep going a couple more verses. Verse 15, and there I will give her vineyards. The idea of wine, it's joy. And in this place, I'm going to give life and joy to her from this place of the wilderness. And make the valley of Achor a door of hope. Achor is named after Achan. Achan, when the nation of Israel attack Jericho, God said, don't take any plunder. As, as the walls come crumbling down, everything in the city belongs to me. This, this city, this battle is consecrated, it's mine, because I did the work. I caused the walls to fall down. But Achan and his family, they take some treasure, they hide it under their tent, and they are found out amongst the people. And they are stoned and burned and buried at the valley of Achor. So this idea of when... when when the Lord is speaking through Hosea and he says, I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. The place of your reckoning, the reckoning of your sin will become a door of hope. That slave block where she is standing there, it, it's the reckoning of her sin. She deserves to stand there for after, you know, having been treated so kindly by a husband and going and playing the harlot again. She stands there and it's the, it's the place of, of hope for her because Hosea comes and he buys her back. 
And he does not buy her as a slave. He says, you must be my wife. But it's also the door of hope for Hosea because his heart knows the love of God that much more at that slave block as he is walking through his wilderness experience. And he goes and purchases back his, his wife. He realizes and sees, God loves me this much. And so much more than I could ever know. As he's seeing the the connection between him and Gomer and God and the nation of Israel, he is seeing the connection between God and himself. And and what's sad is so often as Christians, we would never sign up for this. I mean, if I could expose an idol real quick, we look at marriage, well, (laughs) those who are not initiated, single young Christians look at marriage as then I'll be a real Christian when I get married. Then I'll really understand God's love. Then I'll, then I'll be a real human being. Right now I'm only half a human being. But once I get married, then I'll be a real Christian, a real human being. And that's a lie. It's garbage. And, and, and really, when we are approaching marriage that way, we're looking at it and we're saying, I'm only signing up for this if it's going to benefit me a lot. If it's best for me. We would never sign up. God's like, hey, I want you to go and marry so-and-so. What? what? <laughs> I can't, no, no way. That's going to be hard. <laughs> that's going to be, no. Mm-mm. And that's often our heart in marriage, but also just as we form other relationships within the body of Christ. I think this relationship's going to cost too much if I try and really dig into it. I don't think it's worth it. <laughs> This person is definitely too emotional for me. <laughs> um, and we weigh the scales that way. We're missing out on an opportunity. When we do that, when we weigh the scales, when we calculate the risk, and we don't look at Jesus, we end up missing out on our door of hope and, and seeing how much God loves us. We're afraid of pain. And, and God uses it. Verse 16, and in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Some of your, other, of your translations, if you're reading a different one, may say my master. After God's saying, after I take you through the wilderness experience, as I, as I walk you through the door of the reckoning of your sin, oh man, I mean, think about the door of our, the reckoning of our sin was the cross, right? Jesus Christ. The place where the wrath of God was poured out. It's Jesus on the cross, and he is the door of our salvation. John chapter 10, verse 7, he says that, I am, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. That's through that place that we walk into salvation and new life. And God's saying that as I walk you through these wilderness experiences, I'm revealing the gospel to you. I am drawing you unto myself. And and no longer, this is what he's saying in verse 16, no longer are you going to call me master or Baal. You're not going to mistake me for these foreign idols who are always taking from you. You're going to call me my husband. In the Hebrew, it's ishi, my ishi. When I read this, you know, just in my studying and, and reading these verses, 
I actually think verse 16 is one of the saddest um, and most horrible things that we have, as human beings can do. We mistake God for a master, for a Baal, for an idol, when he wants to know us as a husband. I almost, I almost want to use that, um, you know, in context of this story and in context of what we're, we're talking about, it's almost like we look at God like he's a pimp rather than a husband. And that's how ugh, gross this word, my Baal, is. And how, how greatly we have mistaken him. Actually, it's probably, it's probably even greater than that, that terminology. We, are, are, uh, we look at God as a pimp, somebody who's trying to exploit us for others' benefit. When, he want, when truly he is our husband, lifting us up from the muck and the mire and loving us. I'm tempted, you know, when I read the Bible, when, I, when I'm trying to draw close to the Lord, I'm tempted to look at my faults. I'm tempted to look at everything I'm doing wrong. And that's necessary. That's a part of what happens, confession. But God calls us into repentance. And repentance is not so much about you owning up to everything you've done wrong. Repentance is about you owning up to and seeing, confessing how right he is. It's, and most of the time as Christians, we come before the Lord and we just say, oh Lord, I've, I've, I've called you Baal, I've called you Baal, I've, I've betrayed you, I've done these things wrong. And, and that's not his desire. That's not what he longs for. He longs for us to come to him and say, Lord, you are my husband. Lord, you love me. Lord, you have laid yourself <laughs> bare so that I can know you. Lord, you are so much better. Lord, you are right that is what repentance is about. It's not about the negative. It's, and we often make it about the negative. We focus on that and we drive that and we, we try and just sit in that. And God's like, no, I want to lift you up. That's why he's not saying, he doesn't just say, stop calling me Baal. He says, call me, you will call me my husband. Repentance is so much less about you finding out how you're wrong. It is so much more about how, you finding out how right God is. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. What you've done wrong, God doesn't even want that to be on the table anymore. How you've made mistakes of his character and who he is, he wants that done away with, forgotten. And all he wants left is the knowledge of how good he is. And he will do the work. He will draw us, allure us into the wilderness and reveal himself to us, showing us his goodness. I love Psalms 23, the very, you know, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Th- those surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, the idea of that goodness and mercy following you, it's like a dog. It's like you're being harassed. It's like you're being chased down by the goodness of God. Like God is in a police car, And the sirens are blazing. And in the back, in the trunk of his car, he doesn't have the evidence of your guilt. He has goodness and mercy. That is what he is chasing you with. How often do you come to church on a Sunday morning and and you kind of walk in with your head hung low and you're just 
I know I've blown it. I know that I haven't done well. And it, you know, our focus is all on our failing and our shortcoming. And, and really, as we come into the courts, his, his courts, we should enter into his courts with thanksgiving and praise and singing about his goodness. During the, during the, the lockdown, I was working very hard in that office trying to learn how to produce video content. <laughs> And I was like, man, they must be missing John right now because <laughs> he was really good at this. And I, um, I was on the phone a lot with John Amon. But I had spent probably 10 hours just sitting at the desk trying to, like, edit videos and get stuff out to the kids. And I'm, I get home, and I'm like, oh, I'm fried. I need to go on a walk. And so my wife's just like, very graciously, I'll put the kids down, go for a walk. And I'm walking down by the the river trail, and honestly, I just feel like garbage. <laughs> I, you know when you've like just been like sinning all day, and you just feel like, I just feel gross. I'm like, Lord, I've been in your house all day working for you, and I feel gross. I feel nasty. Why? And I'm, I'm a very feelings-based person. That's not healthy necessarily, but it's just who I am, um, and God's working with me. And God came down and went on a walk with me, and he didn't address my feelings of how bad I felt. All I, it's, like, it's like I got a little glimpse. It's like he just opened my, my spirit up to understand how good he is. And as I was going on this walk and I was listening to worship music, guys, I was just skipping for joy. And because I, I, it's like I got a little glimpse of not just like seeing the goodness of God, but feeling it, experiencing it. It's like a little, like a little peeking through the door. And I just, more than ever in my life, I was aware that Jesus is so good that I could go the rest of my life sinning, and it wouldn't matter. And, and I don't even like saying that to you right now. <laughs> that sounds like, well, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> that doesn't sound quite right. <laughs> but just, that's how good he is. His goodness, his righteousness, and what he has done on the cross, it's so powerful and so amazing and so good that I could spend the rest of my life sinning and it wouldn't matter because he has conquered sin and death. His work is sufficient to tell us that it is done. And I still, you know, next day I woke up, still had all my issues and problems and things that I struggle with, but man, that was amazing. And God was trawling me and revealing himself to me. Let me just continue reading. And I will make for them, this is verse 18 of Hosea chapter 2, And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will uh, betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. The book of the Hosea is that verse right there. That's what's on the table. That's what God desires, that you, that we would know the Lord biblically. <laughs> and we would be intimate with him. And we sing worship songs that are pretty provocative. So, I mean, Lord, have your way with me. Whoa. <laughs> How often have we sang that lyric and not realized what the idea, the connotation there was, the intensity of the intimacy there? I love these verses because it's God saying, I'm going to do this. I'm going to betroth you to me forever. 
In righteousness, justice, in steadfast love, in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. As we come together as the body of Christ and we, we take communion, this is what we're remembering. And, and as you interact with each other, as, you, as we crawl up on the altar together, the great barbecue, <laughs> and we lay our lives down for one another, we worship him, and his love is revealed to us. Don't miss out on that experience. Don't miss out on the knowledge of God's love in your life. If Hosea had said, heck no, I'm not going to marry that woman. I'm a good Hebrew. He would have missed out on seeing God's love for him because we are the Gomer. We are the prostitute. The worship team, would you come back up? Have you been betrayed? By the body of Christ, do you feel like I can't invest anymore? I don't want to crawl up on that, on that altar anymore. I'm not saying you won't be betrayed. I'm saying through the betrayal, you will know the love of God in your life. You will realize that you have betrayed him, and he still loves you. There's no way through this except discovering how evil and wicked we are, and yet at the same time, how loved, but Paid for, we are. Lay yourselves out. Again, Romans 12. I beseech you, brothers. I beg you that you would lay yourselves on this altar, that you would offer up your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your reasonable act of worship. Um. Now? Okay, Deborah's going to lead us in a special song, and then we will we'll partake in the elements. Just want you to sit and, and meditate and think, think upon God's word. When we sang that song a little while ago, I Surrender All, and those are really um, very serious lyrics when, when you think about it, serious words that we're praying we're surrendering everything. That's just not, um, you know, our, our burdens. That's, that's our flesh. That's our will. And that's our rights. We're giving up to the Lord. So let's pray with me as we sing this.